Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Samuels, and this is another episode of Coffee and Liquidity, the podcast that sits nicely at the intersection of curiosity and business. The American dream can mean so many different things to so many different people. There's no one right answer. There's no one right path forward. But let's talk about ways to set yourself up and your family up for financial freedom in the future. All right. So we've got Mason Moreland sitting in the green room back in the, the backstage, ready to, uh, to come on uh, for today's episode of uh, Coffee and Liquidity. Mason is the proprietor behind Texas Vine Country. If you're familiar uh, at all, if not, go to TexasVineCountry.com. Um, I'm not sure, Mason, you know, I'm going to go ahead and bring you on here. I'm not sure if people realize how robust the wine country is in Texas. I mean, you hear about Napa, you hear about other parts in the country. But uh, so first, you know, before we get started, uh, I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about uh, your background, who you are, what you're about, and then um, you give yourself a little bit of a bio if I messed up anything there. But then also, uh, if you can kind of dovetail into, you know, what attracted you to the the Texas wine country and talk to us a little bit about that kind of from a macro level to sort of kind of set the table for us, if you would. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the intro. That's uh, that's great. The uh... Running joke is I'm I'm pretty okay at a lot of things and a master of none. Uh, but uh, you know what? It, it it works out. You end up seeing a lot of opportunities that way. But yeah, my background is is in uh, environmental consulting primarily. I'm an ecologist, biologist by uh, by training. Spent uh, last you know almost ten years in in the consulting field right out of school. Worked for Texas Parks and Wildlife too for a while, uh, and have been investing in real estate. Um, since I got out of school, 2012. But as far as the energy side, uh, I married uh, sort of into it and, and <laughs> started getting into it that way. My wife's dad is a professor, a petroleum engineering professor, and uh, started learning about it a lot back when we first started dating in, in uh, college. And um, ended up, uh, after being in consulting for some time, uh, working for Anadarko Petroleum, which was a great experience. Uh, and that's how we got to Midland was Anadarko. My wife and I both worked for them and um, you know, still investing in real estate this whole time. And sort of throughout that process, kept coming back in, in contact with the wine industry in Texas and you know, realized, hey, this is something that, that has some really interesting market gaps in it that uh, you know, I have a, a skill set that I can use to go out there and fill. Uh, some of those market gaps. And like you said, most people really don't think of, of Texas as uh, being a wine uh, wine producing region. Uh, in reality, you know, one of the things that, that always surprises folks, my, my wife lived in France for a little while and we went out there to uh, for one of uh, her friend's weddings not too long ago. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. But, you know, they're really all French wines, right? Like you're really grafting, you know, French vines on top of stuff, right? And we're like, yeah, well, but you didn't know that you had uh, Texas, Texas rootstock that you were using for the past, oh, 80 years plus. Uh, so really? Texas actually saved the the worldwide, especially the French uh, wine industry, uh, when phylloxera uh, was was sort of taken out vineyards uh, left and right in Europe. Uh, they realized that you could graft the uh, traditional wine grape varieties on top of the um, the native grapes from Texas, uh, and each grape has its own sort of uh, package of characteristics, right? Of uh, you know salt resistance, drought resistance, disease resistance. Uh, how much vigor they provide the vine. Uh, do they like sandy soils, clay soils? So you can really have uh, one variety of grape and then tailor it to exactly what soil you have. Um, they, they had no idea about that. They thought that was pretty fascinating. So Texas has a long, 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 long history in the wine industry. It just never really took off on a large commercial scale until the last 
20 years or so. So, you know, I'm not a big drinker um, and definitely not uh, you know very knowledgeable about wine. I'm curious, you know, as you were explaining that, so is, you, know, you mentioned, that, you know, the grapes can be put in different soil to, to get, a, you know, I guess a slightly different product is, um, I guess my question to you is, so there's certain parts of the country, actually, let me back up. There's certain fruits and vegetables and nuts that can only grow in like certain parts of the country because they have to have certain water table, soil quality, etc. Are grapes different in the sense that the grape will produce, but you're going to get a different, you know, you get a different output, but, you know, depending on that, it's going to be a different type of wine or their portion or their types of soil or types of climate that want, you know, wine grapes just don't grow. Can we have some perspective on that? Definitely. So that's that's one of the big deals why, you know, we're growing grapes out here in what is really the fringe of the Permian Basin, uh, you know, near La Mesa, Texas. It's like you don't imagine vineyards in this flat area where I I love the like you can stand on a tuna can and watch your dog run away for a week kind of a deal <laughs> um, uh, to describe this to people that have never been out here. It's dead flat and it's really hot and dry. Uh, but it's actually great for grapes. So the problem that that Texas has really is that the uh, the, the areas that most people typically associate with wine production are uh, places like the hill country, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Austin, Fredericksburg, Stonewall, High, all those places. Well, the problem is they're really humid uh, and they're not very windy. So you have this you have this uh, problem where grapes don't like uh, they don't like to be wet all the time. They want to have rain and then they want to dry back out and stay dry. Uh, so if you if you have grapes. Uh, the actual clusters that are wet or the leaves uh, promotes fungal diseases, which are a big issue in humid, humid areas, which is why most of the state of Texas uh, grows some kind of hybrid of native grapes and, and wine grapes or a, a native grape itself. Whereas up here in the high plains, it's so dry and windy uh, that we don't have nearly as much disease pressure and it gets so cold in the wintertime, it kills off most of our pests. So it's, you know, we have to deal with freezes and stuff like that and hail, but uh, you know, we, we don't have to deal with the, existential disease threats or uh, increased costs for fungicide and things like that. Um, 80, about 75 to 85% of the grapes each year are actually grown between about Floyd Ada and Midland for the state of Texas. So it's, it's uh, something most people don't right? realize. Yeah. It's yeah a whole I have no idea. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, can, uh, you, can you speak to some of the macro of, you know, uh, the different, wine regions uh, globally and sort of where the domestic you know, U.S. and maybe even Texas specific, but where that sits in, in terms of market share across. Because I know you know you mentioned France. Uh, there's a number of other places, you know, Spain, et cetera, in, in Europe. Um, Australia, I believe, comes out with, with quite a bit of wine. G- give me some perspective on that. All right, folks. Appreciate you listening to the show today. Hope you're enjoying it. If you're ready to start a podcast, if you're listening to the show today and you've heard something that has lit the fire under you and you're ready to go, check out Podbean. Go ahead and go to alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time, that is A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com backslash affiliate dash partners. If you're looking for a user-friendly interface, that integrates everything from publishing to management, syndication, analysis, everything that you need in an easy-to-use, intuitive podcasting package, check out podbean.com. It is the solution. It is the answer. One more time, alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. Back to the show. Yeah, that's that's actually a great question. Most people don't focus in on the macro level of, of wine, so like the global scale. 
right? It's because it's actually a really interesting market on a global scale. Uh, it's also really interesting in the sense that it's super heavily regulated, right? So the import and export of alcohol, uh, particularly, is highly, highly regulated. Uh, so even if you know you go and get your like four dollar bottle of wine in Italy, you know that's still going to cost ten or fifteen bucks over here. Mm-hmm. Um, now, like on on a sophistication scale, Europe is is miles ahead uh, of of where anybody else is because they've been doing this longer than anyone, right? Um, just about. Uh, so they they primarily specialize in your higher end premium wines. Now you get some other wines coming out of uh, you know the Spanish, the Iberian Peninsula, so Portugal, Spain, and then Italy that are a little bit uh, more budget friendly. So high value proposition. Uh, they've got a pretty decent market share, but by far and away right now, uh, the juggernauts are California, Australia, um, South Africa is big. Uh, they produce a whole lot of wine. Uh, and the U.S. wine market on its own is is probably one of the largest producers in the world now, and primarily because California. Uh, now, as far as within the U.S., Texas is the fifth largest uh, wine production, wine producing state uh, in in the U.S. Uh, and all the other ones, except for New York, are all West Coast, all the West Coast states. So they produce um, the absolute lion's share of what the U.S. produces. Interesting. That's so... So let's uh, you know dive in a little bit, peel the onion back. T- talk to me about Texas wine, uh, wine country. Uh, what do you guys do? Uh, give me the business case from kind of again from a macro level, and then we can kind of peel it back. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, the way I got from oil and gas to this was identifying a, a gap, right, that wasn't being fulfilled uh, in the Texas market originally. So if you if you look at uh, what's being done in, in the West Coast, so that's sort of a fully matured market, right? It's been around for a while. Uh, you know, they're winning competitions consistently. Uh, we're going toe to toe against France, Germany, uh, Spain, Italy, all the all the long, uh, long and storied uh, producing regions of the world. Um, and what do they have? They've got your two buck chuck, right? So it's a super cheap grocery store wine. They've got your high value proposition. So it's called like eight to 10, all the way up to 20, $25 a bottle, something you might drink on a weeknight with dinner, uh, really good quality, really good price. And then they've also got the premium and ultra premium uh, niches up, you know, uh, between 30 and $50 all the way up to hundred. And then, you know, well into your thousands of dollars model. So they've kind of got the full, uh, uh, every niche is filled there, right? Well, if you looked at Texas, uh, we've kind of done things a different way. We're, we're still sort of a young market, uh, really all, that we produce here in state is focused on that premium and ultra premium price point. Uh, so it's going to be over $25 a bottle for almost any Texas bottle of wine. Uh, if you go below that, you're typically not going to be hundred percent Texas grapes or your quality is going to drop off significantly, like really fast. So, you know, your equivalent $10, hundred percent Texas wine currently would probably be on par with your $2, California wine. It's just the value proposition is not the same. So there's a big gap there in that sort of 10 to $25 bottle. Nobody can really produce that right now um, from Texas grapes. So what we came up with for our investment thesis is really um, what what can we do to fill that gap as a grower? Uh, so not as a winery, not as somebody that's marketing bottles of wine, a label as a grower. How do we get, get Texas to get uh, the, the capacity to, to produce those bottles. 
And we looked to California and said, okay, these guys have been doing it the longest. What are they doing? What they do is they drastically reduce overhead. Uh, so your cost per vine, cost per acre, and they drastically mm-hmm. increase yield. So they're pulling both levers, right? So they're producing, you know, they're drilling each well for less and they're making more oil on each well. Uh, it's, you know, a simple equation, right? If you pull from both sides, right. your margin goes way up. Way up. Uh, so the typical Texas producer is super hand labor intensive, right? We all pretty much use some rhyme of uh, what's called BSP, vertical shoot positioning trellising. Uh, and the trellis is just a structure that supports the vines. They're structural parasites. So you have to build something for them to, to grow up. Mm-hmm. And what they do in California, particularly around Fresno, which has a, a pretty similar climate to where we're at, is they use a completely different trellising system called high wire. And it's super simplified. Uh, it's all mechanically um, managed, which takes all that hand labor out. So just for example, you know, we can run about a half section of vineyard with two to three people. The rest, Everything's done by tractors and people. A comparable vineyard in VSP training, like traditional Texas training, would probably take 40 to 60 people, at least seasonally. Wow. Uh, so huge cost savings. Uh, and then our, our actual yield per acre, uh, uh, VSP can uh, produce at good quality about six tons per acre of grapes. Our vineyards can push 10 to 15 tons of grapes per acre at, at comparable qualities. Um, so you're, you're really pushing on both sides. So our investment thesis is, hey, let's bring uh, mechanized, high yield, low operational cost vineyards to Texas, do them at scale so that those expensive pieces of equipment make sense, and then copy and paste that. And that's where we really leverage the, the real estate side by you know raising raising private capital uh, and going out there and being really aggressive about growing this. So th- that brings up what I wanted to get into next. That's a great segue. Uh, talk to me about the liquidity market for wine domestically. Uh, private equity, family office, private individuals, uh, retail. What, what does that look like? Um, and then secondary to that, what was it like to go out and, and raise some capital for uh, TVC? But, but first, again, from a macro perspective, you know, has wine seen the same major uptick in market prices, or, et cetera, that you know, lumber at all? I mean, so many other markets have seen the last 18 months. What's gone, what's gone on in the, in the last couple of years? And what do you think is going to happen you know, in, in the next couple so it, it's been really interesting to watch. That's a good question as far as what has it done, you know, both in relation to COVID and, and everything happening there and on the, the macro scale of time there. Um, on macro scale, what we've really seen, at least in the U.S., which is the biggest market for, for anybody in the U.S. producing, is that consumption has actually stayed pretty flat uh, to, to decreasing of traditional wines. Uh, so where we've actually seen jumps and changes, uh, both up and down, are in uh, carbonated wines, so like champagne style, prosecco styles, non-traditional wine beverages, so like the cat, canned wines, things like that. And we've seen a shift uh, away from uh, with with baby boomers having been the biggest buyer uh, buying class of wine. It's shifted away from that and towards millennials, right? And the typical purchasing power of the millennials has just not been the same. Real quick is because again, I'm, I'm relatively uneducated about wines. Is Prosecco sort of, can you draw a link to like a hard seltzer or like a, like, or is that, is it completely different, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, I like the, some of those, like what, I guess they have like carbonated vodka drinks out now. Is it kind of the same thing or, or is, am I completely off? Like, So Prosecco is basically the Italian version of, of champagne uh, using very similar methods to, to carbonate it. Um, so that, that's all just 
typical white wine that's been carbonated. Now, what is uh, similar to what you're talking about is something like the Ket, which is actually after they've crushed the grapes, gotten the juice out, mm -hmm. uh, and they're down to just skins and seeds and things like that. They'll actually rehydrate that, add a little bit of sugar back to it and ferment on top of those. And that makes uh, a less alcoholic, uh, weaker wine-based beverage. Uh, it's, it's nice to have a, a little bit fizzy in a can, nice and cool. It's, it's real refreshing. It used to be like the field, the field hands drink uh, back in the day. But yeah, I, I mean, we, we've really seen a shift uh, as, as boomers start to age out uh, and pass away, away from premium and ultra premium wines. So right now, the margin is still really in those premium and ultra premium wines on the West Coast. Uh, so typically where you'll see folks investing, family offices, uh, private capital, things like that are in those ultra premium wines and wineries uh, because that's where the margin is out there. Uh, because, uh, you know, if you look at somebody that's doing what we're doing out in Fresno, uh, they're selling grapes for $500 a ton and their break even cost is $450. Uh, you know, so they're just trying to eke it along. They've all, they're almost out of water out there. Uh, they have fire risks, smoke risk. There's a lot going on out there that makes it hard for the, the bulk growers, which is actually interesting because in markets east of the West Coast, uh, there's tons of wine produced. It's just reliant on the fruit produced on the West Coast. So they import all those raw materials. Uh, and that's really where I think Texas can come in big here as well, uh, is to step into that gap and, and export more raw, raw materials, not just within the state, but outside of that. There's a question on there. Uh, does yeah. Oklahoma have any exceptional geographic areas for growing grapes like this? So Oklahoma does not. Uh, the, the Western Panhandle portion is sort of the closest you can get, and it's pretty marginal just because of the the I guess the latitude. It's so far north uh, that you have increased... Uh, freeze risk and hail risk up there. Typically, we're not even looking at uh, new vineyard areas north of, say, like uh, Floyd Ada. Uh, that's that's kind of the, the northern limit where things start to get a little bit is, is proximity to the equator, is that part a healthy part of the equation? Uh, part of it, uh, it. It really, the most critical, because folks grow grapes on the western slope of Colorado. I mean, it can be done almost anywhere. And they grow them in Canada, you know, and they'll be under six feet of snow. Of course, six feet of snow... Uh, where it's, you know, 30 degrees under the snow and minus 15 above the snow, uh, the grapes are protected. Well, down here, we don't get any snow. So you're just, they're just getting hammered with, uh, you know, 10 degree wind chills constantly, no snow cover. And it's, mm -hmm. that's really hard on the grapes. And then the shoulder season freezes when you get a late freeze in the spring or an early freeze in the fall, that's what really hurts them. Uh, so we try to stay out of areas that, that have that risk, uh, in, increased risk. But yeah, uh, like out here, the you know when we we're we're in the middle of our first raise, our first big raise, and uh, it's actually been fairly easy to raise capital on the private uh, private side. So for accredited investors and things like that, it's it's been pretty smooth. Um, most of the interest comes from folks that are currently in things like multifamily or commercial, uh, self storage, oil and gas, things like that, that are looking for some diversification. They want to get into agriculture, uh, but you know, your five or 6% cash on cash yields are just not that attractive. It's interesting that you mentioned some of the, you know, kind of the coupling assets or some of the things that are similar. Um, Cause I think that there's, you know, direct line, or, you know, direct line, like you mentioned, I mean, a number of investments across the energy space, um, you know, I think self-storage and real estate certainly uh, makes sense. What, uh, what would you say in regards to, you know, who, who this is not for, who's, who is the, this investment really not profiled for? Uh, that, 
<laughs> that's a good point. So I, I usually lead off with that. So these 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 kind of things are not for somebody that wants you know a hyper liquid investment. Like if you want, uh, if if you're expecting to put your capital in and get your capital back out and redeploy it in two years, it's just not going to happen, right? Uh, these are more akin to an orchard. Uh, you plant it. When's the best time to plant a tree? Twenty years ago. When's the next best time? Right now. Uh, it takes five years for them to get up to full production. So okay. you don't get your first production until the third year, and it's usually just barely economic uh, to even harvest it. Uh, the fourth year, uh, you get about fifty to sixty percent of production, and then fifth year it comes into full. Uh, and we actually knock fruit off during those initial years, and that's mm-hmm. that's mostly because we we push such high yields later on in its life. We want to make sure that plant focuses on getting big and resilient uh, on the front end. Can you ten thirty one either in or out of one of these investments? Uh, on some agricultural investments, you can. The way we have ours set up, it would be difficult to ten thirty one out. Uh, you could, uh, in theory, 1031 in. We haven't done that just because it complicates things a little bit. Uh, some some models that other folks have done, I've seen Farmfolio do this, is they do lots. So say they're doing an avocado plantation. Everybody owns uh, one acre. You can 1031 in and out of an acre of land. Piece of cake, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they all are in a joint agreement for the farming. So they share the yield and they share the costs as well. Uh, so it's just a little bit different model than what we do. So I'll, at the end of the show, I'm going to give you a chance to uh, you know, tell people where they can find you and where they can uh, follow up. Or for anybody that's maybe listening now and doesn't have a, uh, you won't have a chance to listen to the whole episode. Uh, you know, if someone is listening and wants to hear more about what you're talking about, wants to reach out and potentially uh, hear more about this opportunity. How can they do that? Where can they find you? Yeah, for sure. They can they can reach me on LinkedIn. That's definitely the best place to find me is, is on LinkedIn. Um, real active on there. And then also TexasVineCountry.com got all sorts of FAQ and things like that about what we do, but always happy to, you know, jump on a call and just chat. I'm, I, this, this sort of stuff just jazzes me up and I love to, I love to talk about it. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, vines or, uh, residential real estate or anything, uh, oil and gas. I just love, I love the deals. It's fun. I love some problems. Yeah. You, you and I have that very much in common. Uh, you know, people at, from time to time will ask me like, you know, what do you do? Tell me about yourself. And I'm like, where, where do I start? What do you, what do you want to hear about? <laughs> so I can give you, you know, you talk about a lot, a lot of different things. And so, uh, you know, kind of, ta- uh, you know, leaning into that, you said you're out here in Midland. How long have you been out here now? Uh, we've been out here for almost five years. Okay. And where are you from originally? Uh, I'm originally from north of Dallas, Carrollton, yeah. uh, Carrollton, oh. Louisville area. Um, but uh, my family's actually from here uh, in Odessa, my dad's side. Uh, so they're, my, my mom and dad were the only ones that uh, moved away from the oil patch and their kids just kind of got sucked right back in. And your wife is in the gas industry, you said? Uh, she was, yeah. Currently, uh, she just uh, stopped being a full-time stay-at-home mom. She picked up uh, some part-time work engineering again. She's actually an industrial engineer by, by trade, so she's... Uh, oh. A little more flexible. Uh, she's she's working all over the place, oil and gas, insurance, all sorts of companies. Uh, and uh, you have uh, one kid, or uh, I have a lot of kids. <laughs> I have three kids. Uh, Is that right? So, yeah, between between me and our vineyard man, uh, director of vineyard management, we've got a whole uh, like uh, football team. But uh, it's, uh, I've got three. He's got five. Running joke is we'll have uh, you know our our labor for all the blocks we can possibly plant, uh, pretty much covered. But, uh, no, I was going to say, so I mean, what, you know, at what age do they get to get out there and start doing like whatever they need to do to make the, the field work? <laughs> I, I bring my five-year-old out there uh, and she's pretty good. She's, uh, she's uh, really into the tractors. Uh, she loves the 
uh, our partner has a one of those massive eight wheel John Deere's for running his cotton cotton fields. Mm-hmm. She loves that thing. She just wants to go in there and stand inside the wheel and hang out. But uh, yeah, I mean, they can get out there and start picking grapes and hoeing and uh, figuring out how things work out there pretty, pretty young. So I don't want you to give away the secret sauce. I don't, I don't need you to give away the secret formula. I, I try to ask people like yourself this question because I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, sounds like, I mean, you said it a couple of times that you, you found the need, you filled the need and, and now you have a business and, and you know, that's, to a degree, that's the American dream, right? You, you find a way to, to fill something that, that's not being serviced and, and find a way to make money at it. And you're there. Um, I'm curious. I always find it interesting that, you know, when someone says that, that sounds so easy. Like, yeah, I found it. I found a market that was underserved. And then like, I started a business and it's like, it's almost like, oh yeah, I start, I thought of this thing. And then like the next day I like just went out and did it. Talk to me a little bit about what it took to identify the need and sort of the ramp up to, you know, where you were from like idea to, to business. Talk me through that pathway a little bit. I, I think there's like a key skill there that will get you uh, across that line. I think it's underwriting. If you can really understand how to build like an ecosystem to, um, Hey Mike, what's up? What's um, Mike? Yeah. I just saw Mike Rispy popping there. For, uh, uh, real quick for anybody that wasn't, uh, I, I, Mason, I don't think we saw you this weekend. We'll have to get you up, uh, after the next sky high for kids event, but uh, yeah, Mike was actually yeah, the, uh, the guest of honor on, on Friday. So uh, we yeah, I saw that. He's, him a bit. Yeah. He, he's fantastic. He, he does some fantastic work for, uh, he does. for sky high. And I, I saw he was uh, moving out of, of middle of Odessa. So I was pretty sad to see that, but I'm yeah. uh, glad he, he's still, still around and active to, to keep in touch. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the secret sauce to really finding something like that is to be able to underwrite anything. Uh, if you can, uh, underwriting, for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, is basically just uh, modeling the finances of uh, a business or an asset with both the revenue, expenses, and the debt portion. Uh, and so that's what I had gotten really good at uh, with the real estate side of things. And literally, anytime some kind of business came along, I underwrote it. So it's car washes. Uh, you know, vending machines, uh, coin-operated laundries, anything that I was like, oh, that's interesting. I would go figure out how that works and sort of what's the life cycle of that investment uh, and build a little model for it in Excel. And if you can do that um, and and really like literally underwrite everything, right? Everything you can come across, you can start to identify these niches and see, hey, is there actually an opportunity here? What are the barriers to entry? And do I have the right people in my circle? Uh, to go tackle that. Uh, with grapes, it was just unique that I happened to have the right folks to go tackle this niche uh, in my circle uh, when I identified it. Uh, and, you know, things as, as you expand your network from there, uh, when you encounter a new problem, you end up realizing that that's a barrier to entry for somebody else. And, hey, I can go tackle that. Like the capital raising, right? Almost nobody does this for vineyards. <laughs> so, uh, you know, w- once we realize, hey, we can merge those two and get get way uh, way far ahead of the pack uh, doing that, it's just a matter of going, okay, who are, who are the people in my network that I need to bring in here that we can do this more effectively? So, did you kind of cut your teeth uh, on the in the entrepreneurial sphere first in real estate? Was that the first kind of foray, or, or was there something even <laughs> before that? <laughs> so, uh, I don't think I've ever shared this one uh, with anyone outside of my like close circle of friends because it's kind of embarrassing, but I'm a serial entrepreneur and my first business was actually breeding guppies as a kid. So I bred show guppies. Yeah. I mean, it's like the dorkiest thing on the planet, but I had like these really nice guppies and I would sell them online. So that's, I mean, literally when I was like seven or eight, I was already starting to figure out like, okay, how do I 
produce okay, some kind of value. What makes a good guppy? Exactly, right? <laughs> the beauty is in the eye of the guppy beholder. It's, uh, I mean, that was a long time ago. I was like seven or eight. But yeah, I was like in IFGA and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, but had the little tanks everywhere. But uh, yeah, they have like all sorts of different, it's like dogs. Like they each have their own little breeds yeah. or whatever. And there are different colors and shapes and things like that. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, just random little businesses like that. That's awesome. I, you know, so I, I spent, I mean, I say most of my childhood, that's probably not accurate, but a significant portion of my childhood at home in the backyard hunting frogs, picking up tadpoles, like do, doing all that. So we're clearly cut from the same cloth. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't selling guppies online though. I clearly missed the boat. <laughs> that's, that's back when the internet was like new for all that too. It was like, my dad was like, what have you? Okay, great. You're just starting a business. That's awesome. Just sure. do your thing, man. <laughs> My mom got let me get away with a lot. Wait, uh, so these people that you're selling guppies to, like, did they not realize that like they could like go outside and like pick one up, or like, or you were you selling them for like a dime, or like what? Well, I'm now I'm so, really fascinated by this. So that was a weird thing. So I mean, it's like I said, it's like show dogs, right? So they have these like guppy shows and things like that. I don't I don't know how popular it is now. I haven't I haven't even looked at it in two decades. But uh, you know, when they, they would sell for twenty thirty dollars a piece for a nice one uh, that has like you know like a lineage like you can track it back to some like championships show winner or things like that you know they have a bunch of babies so it's like well you just all right uh, so, it's like green so dogs it's weird for anybody that might be listening to this podcast is listen to any of the other coffee <laughs> liquidity podcasts in, in the history of, of this show um <laughs> guys if you don't know if you can start a business um you can flip guppies online um it can- <laughs> If, if you can find if you can find a niche to fill an economic need with tiny fish, I mean, you'll figure it out, that. right? We're gonna figure it out. That. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, no, it's like no, that's that's like a, I feel like that's even a better iteration of like you know the, the saying like oh yeah I can sell ice to an Eskimo I can sell like sand to an Arab whatever like <laughs> I can sell guppies online for thirty dollars a pop like that's even, like I feel like that's even better. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so this is this is another story. So my my uh, my my training by uh, by school is actually in herpetology. So all the, the okay. creepy, scaly stuff, snakes, lizards, amphibians. So I'm I'm a huge nerd on that stuff. Still still love that, but um, less so these days. Uh, just wrapped up in everything else. But you know, back in I guess it was the early 2000s. So this is still when I was you know a, a preteen. Um, but snakes were this big thing because there was no major regulation yet on what you could and couldn't have uh mm-hmm. people were breeding all these different kinds of crazy color morphs like albino snakes and solid white ball pythons just all sorts of weird things and i distinctly remember a moment when i was at one of these shows where there's you know people are buying and selling uh interesting reptiles and this one guy had about 15 snakes for sale and each one was twenty thousand dollars every single one and his only input on that was basically a couple cages, some mice every year, and, and water, right? Just a little bit of time. Uh, and it was just the once I realized that it, it, it's kind of the same thing that got me into real estate, right? Once you realize that there's a lot of value, and the value's in the eye of the beholder, as long as you can figure out what's a value and go out there and, and provide it to people, you can make a business out of anything. All right, so let's. Uh, I want to zoom back. I had a couple other questions on, on the line, so we're going to come full circle and come Sweet. back here. Um, okay, so I'm not really replaying something you said earlier. Did you say that you guys have some assets? Are you guys up in the La Mesa area? Like right out here? Yeah, yeah. Our main base of operations is on the north side of La Mesa there, right off 87. 
Wanted to take a quick break. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you're looking for your own fast and reliable dedicated server or maybe a domain at a fantastic price, hosting services, security, managed WordPress, whole range of innovations, namecheap.com. It was started in 2000 with a mission to deliver the best domains at the best prices with the best service. And they have gone ahead and done that through and through over the last 20 years. Go ahead and check it out. AlderonVentures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. One more time. AlderonVentures.com backslash affiliate dash partners. A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com backslash affiliate dash partners. Namecheap.com. Check it out. Okay. So, um, so Source Rock, we own a couple thousand acres, a little bit south of that, uh, right next to Ackerley. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, yeah. And we've we've got so so. I guess the, actually that's the. Uh, I was thank you. I, I was talking myself through the question. Dry uh, dry farms. Does this have to be irrigated? What what is the water consumption for these fields look like? Because you know, it, uh, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, California is actively running out of water. Uh, you know, the Texas desert doesn't have much. Uh, you know, so what, what is the need for water out there or for, or for these fields? So it's probably best to put it in both like an absolute and a, like a relative perspective, because like you said, most of what's out here is either dryland farmed or it's under uh, center pivot irrigation, right? Yep. Uh, and it's cotton, peanuts, uh, sorghum, things like mm-hmm. that, typically. Um, so what we do is we do drip irrigation. So it is irrigated. Uh, now in years like this, where we got like, what is it, like 30 inches of rain or something, never had to touch the pumps. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, we're, we're sitting there wondering, well, how are we going to get all our nutrients out there this year? I guess we're going to have to spray them. That's uh, you know, no big deal. It's just a little different. Uh, normally we get, you know, 16 to 20 inches of rain out here. Um, and we do have to irrigate uh, typically in the later months. So um, July, August, we may have to irrigate a little bit. Uh, and then uh, at the end of fall, we'll irrigate a good deal uh, to, to really fill up the water column uh, or the, the soil profile uh, and make sure it's completely moist. Um, and then again, in the spring, we'll, we'll do that again. So that as soon as those vines green up, they can just you know shoot, uh, shoot out real, real fast. But uh, on a relative perspective, you know, we only need uh, without anything creative, we can easily work with like 500 gallons a minute on a half section. So, you know, a typical, if, if you see a pivot on it and it can run the pivot, we can definitely do uh, drip, subsurface drip irrigated grapes on it. Uh, now we can do a lot more creative stuff uh, than traditional row crops can do uh, because we only irrigate on pulse, right? So it's only a few days for a very short amount of time. Uh, so we can actually work with all the way down to, you know, 200 gallons a minute by building like a frack pond. Uh, and we can fill that frack pond, have some atmospheric storage. Uh, and it'll it'll be able to catch up with our pulse of irrigation, uh, and then by the time we shut it off, you know, the pond's not empty. We can fill it back up over time. What's uh, what's the typical growth cycle out here? I mean, what, when are you planting? When is it growing? When is it harvesting? You mentioned some shorter months. What does that look like? Yeah, so like the the typical life cycle. So if you start when the vines have just gone dormant, uh, so they've lost their leaves like a tree does. Uh, that's typically in like that November December time frame. Uh, once you get your first freeze, all your vines are going dormant. They're they're going to sleep. Uh, so you still got all that year's growth sticking out of it. It's a big mess. You got you know canes just going every which way. You basically leave it like that. So you have a good off season, right? So it's like November all the way up through to January, February, and then 
February, March, April starts to get a little bit busy. That's when you hit your first major vineyard task, and that's pruning. And it has to be done every single year. Uh, so only that year's growth, the buds from last year are going to grow new canes, uh, and that's what's going to produce the fruit. So you constantly got to be cutting it back. Uh, and that's one of our big labor savings is we actually use our plank uh, tractor, which has AI built on, and you could set exactly how long you want to leave the spur. Uh, and it just, you just babysit the tractor and it actually moves all these rotating blades to cut through there. Hmm. Um, but so you got pruning in the, in the late, late winter there. Uh, and then you have, uh, going out of that bud break. So it starts to green up in like your March, April, uh, May timeframe. Uh, and that's really where you get that late freeze dangers in April. Uh, so if it, you get a freeze there when the vines are tender and green, it can, it can cause some damage to your crop for the year because they actually put grapes out pretty quick. Uh, so you have bloom, uh, they have flowers that come out and they turn into grapes. Uh, the fruit sets and these little BB sized fruits uh, in early summer. Uh, at that point, the canopy just takes off. You're getting this huge canopy growth for our system. The reason it's so much higher uh, off the ground than a traditional system is so we can get this big branching umbrella of canopy and that'll harvest sunshine all year, produce all the sugars and, and flavor compounds throughout the year. Uh, then come say late July, it all depends on kind of the heat and, and uh, whether it was a drought year or not. But typically July, August, you'll start to have your white grapes come off. We'll go ahead and harvest those. We harvest those by machine. Uh, each varietal matures at a slightly different time, uh, which is good for us. Uh, we don't have to do all our work in the middle of the night for like three nights in a year. Uh, we kind of spread it out for a little while and just be nocturnal for a couple months. You know, by the end of September, you've typically got all your red grapes off of the vine and your process starts all the way over again. But during the summer there, before grapes are finally finished, you're doing a lot of different work like uh, hedging the canopy so it has the right shape and size for the crop load you're trying to hang. Uh, knocking off any excess grapes if you have too many on there. Later in the season, you can do some different things like spraying different uh, foliar uh, like leaf chemicals, uh, typically like potassium, zinc, things like that to help with ripening, and such as knocking leaves off so that they can get some more sunlight into the grapes. Uh, we take a really scientific approach and, and take a lot of pride in that. Um, you know, just anecdotal story from this year is, uh, you know, one of our, one of our clients was uh, out there looking at, I think it was our Grenache, and he was talking to Rusty, and he's like, man, I don't see how you're going to ripen this. There's, you do not have enough time left in the season to get this ripe. Like it's, it's just not there. And he's like, I already harvested mine. I, I can't mix yours with mine now because yours isn't going to be ripe, but mine was different area. And we we're like, well, you know, trust the system. It'll be ripe. Come back in two weeks, check it out. And we stuck to our system based on our, our chemical analysis, you know, Hey, let's hit it with a foliar potassium spray. Sure enough, he comes back and he's like, dang it, Rusty, I have no idea how you did this what voodoo magic you used, but it's perfect. It's like, this shouldn't be possible. We're like, you know, well, we just, we use good consultants and uh, follow the science. So uh, did the Texas freeze this past year? I mean, did that put you guys in a bind given the time frame, or, or are the, or is the product uh, pretty resilient to stuff like that? So up here, it's pretty resilient. Like the February 14th Valentine's day, big deep freeze. It got down to about minus five uh, and the vines were fine. We had a couple individual vines, but out of, you know, 350 acres, nothing. Uh, we're not even sure that's actually freeze damage yet. We haven't, they, they're showing signs of uh, iron deficiency, even though they have enough iron. So the best we can guess before cutting them up is maybe they had a little bit of freeze damage, but it, it's just a few. Um, so that didn't affect us much. Uh, they were still dormant. Now the rest of the state got absolutely hammered. Uh, so where it's not as cold during the winter, they stay dormant uh, less. Uh, so they come out of dormancy much earlier. 
and they were already coming out of dormancy then in a lot of the state and they got killed. Uh, now the freeze we had in April where it got down to just like 31, 31 and a half degrees, that actually did cause some damage. So we lost, you know, probably a, a ton or so per acre of production this year from that. So, so, so if it's, if it, the plant is still dormant, it's very resilient to, to a deep freeze, but once it comes out, it, you know, it, it can really hurt it if, if it freezes after that. Is that exactly. And that's, that's why I was concerned about, I'm always concerned about the shoulder seasons, right? Spring and fall. I don't want, I don't want an early freeze in the spring and I don't want a late freeze in the fall. Right. Uh, cause if it's green, it's really tender, but if it's dormant and brown, they are super hardy. Uh, you know, negative five is about as low as you want to go. I wouldn't want to go much lower than that, but they can handle down to negative 10, negative 15, depending on the varieties. I'm curious uh, what your commentary on, I mean, what, what is the, the wine in California done given all the fires and, and the, you know, the, the disasters we're having out there in terms of all the smoke. I mean, imagine that that's gotta be horrible for the grapes. I, I think the biggest impact we've had, you know, like is smoke taint. So the actual smoke itself will taint the berries uh, and, and produce like an off nasty kind of cigarette flavor in the wine. So it, it it's really can be undrinkable if you don't know how to either get it off in the front end or chemically alter the wine, which would be expensive on the back end. Um, so what is, what's really done on a market level uh, is show everyone that there's some supply chain weakness there, right? Um, because all these wineries that you see, they don't typically produce their own grapes. Uh, you know, somebody like Gallo, the largest wine company in the world, yeah, they're producing most of their own grapes. But, and they're going to have issues. They have had issues from the fire. But everybody else sources their grapes from growers, especially outside of the West Coast. You know, they're ordering from California. Uh, and California gets served first. Uh, for whatever bulk wine or bulk juice or bulk grapes there are, that gets taken care of locally first. And then the rest of us kind of get the scraps. So especially here in Texas, what we realized is, okay, we really can't rely on this long term. You know, A, it's not good for the brand, right? We don't want to have 20% uh, 20 California Texas wines. It it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, And it's not good for our own sustainability. We need to be able to produce all of our own grapes instead of just half. Does TVC private label or? No, we, we solely focus on the growing side of things. So we, we have uh, grapes that go to, you know, your Curvo Hills, uh, Pernola Cellars, um, you know, let's see who else we got, Adega Vino, uh, all sorts of wineries all across the state um, that are using our grapes. Austin Winery uh, has a couple bottles with our grapes in it. Uh, we, we really made a concerted effort to stay away from that side. And if we get into that, great, later in the future, but that's sort of the most saturated segment of the value chain in wine in Texas is making the labels and, and marketing that. We didn't we didn't have any of the key people to do that. Uh, where we saw the gap was really on the growing side. We also have another business uh, that we're uh, in construction on right now, Firm Forge, where we do uh, custom winery services. So it's a winery, fully functioning, uh, but it, it makes wine and does wine wine making services for other wineries. So it's like a co-pack. So what is what is the typical engagement or contracts look like? I mean, so if you are growing the grapes and you, and you are providing those grapes to these other places to to then bottle it and put it on put it on the shelves, are are you are you growing the grapes like on the front on on the front end on behalf of those clients, or is it once they're harvested, then you're sort of going out to market and, and selling selling the grapes once people like test them or, or what have you? What does kind of the supply chain look like on that front? 
is definitely long-term contracts. So, you know, they, these wineries really value stability. You know, when they put out a, a label, they want that label to taste the same year after year. And they want to have the least amount of work of, you know, sourcing different stuff and blending it to get it back to where it, it should be mm-hmm. uh, every year. You know, there's some, some seriously some wizards out there as far as uh, blending wines. They can make uh, the same label taste exactly the same every year with wildly different grapes uh, each year, wildly different suppliers. Yano comes to mind. Uh, uh, Greg, Greg, and, and Jason Santani over there—they're they're pretty much wizards uh, with with the blending work. But it it's a little different in Texas now in that a lot of it's like handshake, like ah hey, yeah, let's you know I'll buy six tons off of you next year, and that's kind of a function of the scale, right? Everybody's sort of in that five to fifty hundred acre size. Uh, now with larger uh, vineyards like ourselves, it's typically multi-year contracts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're already saying here's an escalating term. You know, over over the years to account for inflationary loss uh, of price. Uh, you're you're talking. You know, we're we want to have between this tonnage and this tonnage that we're going to pick up from you guys. That's the range that we'll buy from you every year. That's that's great, uh, Mason. I really appreciate the time. I know we're running a, a little bit uh, over here, so I want to make sure I give you another chance to uh, to tell people where they can find you, etc. But uh, any closing thoughts? Anything uh, that uh, that you want to uh, leave us with uh, in uh, in regards to the wine? Like I mentioned, I'm de- we're definitely going to have to do this again on some of the other shows that I have and, and peel back the onion uh, when they have to talk about the guppy thing somewhere else. But I probably still got a business card from that somewhere. I'm sure my mom does. That's that's who probably hasn't, but uh, Guppy's, Guppy's RS. I think it was Guppy's galore. Not that's not lying. Uh, yeah, I mean, better. it had to be alliterative, right? If I was going <laughs> to do it, yeah. Oh, good times. Um, yeah, I mean, if if you want to reach out to me, definitely LinkedIn's the best place to find me. Uh, super active on there. Uh, TexasFineCountry.com. Uh, that's our our main company site. So that you know is the the company that holds all our brands, like Cannon County Vineyards, Firm Forge, all the additional vineyards we're building. Um, and things like that. Uh, those are the best places to find me. Awesome. Well, Mason, th- again, thank you so much for the time. Appreciate it. Uh, for those uh, that are um, still going to be around later this afternoon, I have uh, four o'clock with Mark Patton. Mason, do you know Mark? I do not know Mark. No, he's uh, he's the principal behind Hydrozonics that you may have heard of. They're one of the water purification uh, groups out here. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, what's going on in the oil food water market. Uh, I know that uh, that's another market that you're very familiar with. So we'll have to get you on uh, on that one as well. But uh, appreciate the time. We're going to go ahead and uh, sign off. And uh, for those that are uh, are watching this right now, uh, you maybe didn't catch some of it. You can either replay it or this is this will be released on the podcast apps sometime in the next week or two. Awesome. Right. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ben. Absolutely. Nice. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. And that is a wrap. I am your host, Ben Samuels. This has been another episode of Coffee and Liquidity. Appreciate the support. Appreciate you guys showing up. Go ahead and check out alderonventures.com for more information about what we've got going on and future episode releases. Thanks, guys.